Thank you, Lord, for making us your children and bringing us into your house today. And I'm praying now, Lord, that you will anoint us for healing and understanding, for growth, for strength. And may we only come to look more and more like the family of heaven with every passing day. So give us grace and forgiveness and grace and power to live the resurrected life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This morning I'm going to undertake a difficult topic. We are starting a new series of meetings on the family. And I've entitled this message, What is a Family? Now, uh, let's bring our slides up if we could do that. What is a family? If you go to dictionary.com, you'll learn that a family is a basic social unit consisting of parents and their children, considered as a group, whether dwelling together or not. And then it mentions the traditional family. Now, I thought to get your attention and kind of get us to where we want to go, at least where I think we should go, I'd ask you the question, what is a car? What is an automobile? All right? Let's do this, could we? And maybe you'll be prepared for what I want to say. Well, those are both cars, are they not? Okay. One is a Chrysler Dodge and the other is a Lamborghini. And I want you to know everybody gets to be a part of a family. You may think you came from the top and not the bottom. And the good news is if you came from the top, you can be the bottom. Uh, because God is the great recreator of all things, not just your person, but your family. And what you didn't get, maybe you think in your family, and by the way, go easy on your family so they'll go easy on you in the future generations. Uh, what you didn't get in your family, God designed that you'll get in relationship with him and the church family. And that's why it's important that churches are healthy places. Because if a church is not a healthy place, your dysfunction has nowhere to go. And by the way, everybody's dealing with some. The degree of dysfunction is really partially honesty of person and choice. Uh, I can look back and see mistakes my parents made, but I see so many successes and I'm thankful for them. And I made reference to some of those. But, you know, what, what is a car? The top unit doesn't have headlights, so it can't see in the dark. It also may not have a windshield, which means you'll get bugs in your eyes and your teeth, so you won't be able to see in the day. It probably doesn't have windshield wipers either, which means it can't drive in the storms. And it only has one tank of gas because it was fueled on lust, so when it ran out of gas, it was junk. It might not get an oil change, which means eventually the engine will seize up because there's no lubrication and conflict. And it may not have seat belts, which means when it gets into a wreck, which usually everybody does sooner or later, you might get thrown out. And not knowing what forgiveness is, that might be it. The car might roll over on you and kill you. It may not have brakes because there's no self-restraint in thought, word of action. And it probably doesn't have any work as speedometer or any idiot lights, so there's no feedback, no accountability, nobody's listening. And also, uh, if we look closely, it looks like it probably does have rear view mirrors, but for the sake of my metaphor, it has no rear view mirrors, so you can't see what's coming from behind or what is in your past, honestly, which means you could be in big, big trouble. So when I ask you this morning, what is a family? These two pictures represent kind of this starting point. And um, I can tell you that when I look back and I think about some of the challenges, <clears throat> you're going to be able to look back and look at some of the challenges. I will say this, that 
my parents, in spite of some grave challenges, my father was, uh, my grandfather on my dad's side was a drunkard. That's an ugly word. We don't use it very much, do we? But he abandoned his family. He left them to the poverty of my grandmother, uh, playing the piano in bars. She was a musical person and doing laundry for people. That's the history on my dad's side. Now, my dad died last December, a year ago plus. And uh, my dad did so much better than his dad. You couldn't begin to compare them. They're apples and oranges. And so my dad stood on the shoulders of love, best he understood, managing through the dysfunction that he came out of. When I look back, I have tremendous gratitude and a large measure of humility for the amazing altitude change that my father had from what he was shown and what he grew up into what he gave me. Now, I'm here to tell you that I saw my father drunk a few times, and I've told you before, he's, he's dead now. I want to bring no dishonor to my father, but I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, the family I came out of taught me hard work, respect, a lot of good things. Uh, it was a little weak on affection, and it certainly had a lot of trauma on it. And so on October 31, 1976, my father came home where he was a... Uh, play acting at some kind of haunted house or the JCs, he was drunk. And I'm sure the combination of the alcohol and the evil spirits he had been around led him to beat my mother up. And uh, they had some seatbelts in their car and she understood what trust and respect were and how those axes worked and she moved out of the bedroom. She didn't move out of the house, although she could have. She stuck with him, and I want to tell you, when my dad died at 79 years of age, they had been married for close to six decades. That launching pad for me, I can remember when I was asked to leave uh, the university because I couldn't pay my bill. They had lingered with me long and uh, suffered with me long, but eventually it's not a foundation, you know, it's not a charity organization, although they give out a lot of money, and I'm thankful for what they gave me. But you know, for as in, unable as my parents were to help me, I still called my dad when I knew I had to leave school. And the uh, truth is, I didn't have to leave school because I talked to my Heavenly Father and he worked some things out for me, praise the Lord. I was a young pastor and you can't get trained to do that at a secular university, so I needed to be at Andrews. And I'm thankful for my time there. If you're not an honest person, this series of sermons isn't going to do you very much good. If you care to be honest, I want to tell you something. God will put his arms around you, and no matter where you came from or what you're in, he'll help you go to higher ground. So some of the things I'm going to share may feel like they hit kind of close to home. What is a family? Is it the top picture or the bottom picture? Well, we're all getting to decide. I'm going to tell you this. The bottom picture is very expensive, but the bottom picture is available to everybody. It takes a lot of maintenance. It involves a, a very high insurance premium on the bottom picture. Um, you need to park that car in the garage. It doesn't sit out in the snow and the rain. And uh, you don't just drive down the road and hit every pothole with that car. You pay attention to where you're going and what you're doing. I want you to get the sense of the metaphor. In the marriage seminars that my wife and I have done, I've always used this as the metaphor. You get to decide which vehicle you're in. It's just one cost you an awful lot. And if you say, no, I don't want to pay that price. It's too touchy. It's too painful. It touches on parts of my past. Then you get the top picture. But you can have the bottom picture. But you have to be honest. And you have to be in the arms of Christ so you can accept that no matter where you came from or what you are, it's, it's the hug of heaven that's going to give you the strength to go on to higher ground. And everybody should. 
Uh, my parents, in spite of some of their uh, challenges, gave me a good foundation. It's my mother who was, my mother's been rebaptized, praise the Lord, but that was a journey of 40 years. And when I was a little boy, um, she didn't take me to church. We did have a little bit of reading uh, at times in my home. She did put me in that church school as a teenager, which was like the worst time I thought, but it was the best time. And I owe so much to them. So nothing I want to say today is designed to discourage anybody. And I didn't come out of a perfect home, and my wife and I haven't had a perfect home. But by God's grace, we're building on perfect principles. Can you say amen? amen. And this is what I want you to understand. Now, after 32 years of pastoring, I'm here to tell you that the healthiest, happiest children, in my estimation, working as a, uh, what, what should I call an informal social worker, the, the happiest, healthiest children are coming from the best marriages, and they're also coming from the most traditional-looking families. Now, that's not the father saying, you will do what I say because I'm the head. No, that's a mutually respected home where mom and dad respect each other. They're working closely together. They keep the lines of communication open. They invest in the marriage. I'm going to say it again. They invest in the marriage. They keep the taproot alive that produces all the fruit for everybody in their lives, that keeps the leaves green. And when you look at these homes... They are homes that are built on principles that are extracted from the Word of God. And so in the next three weekends, on the next three Sabbaths, I'm hoping to give you something to work with. I'm not a marital therapist or counselor, although I've done a lot of family life work. I was a family life director for 10 years in the last conference I came from. Most people don't need psychologists. They need the tools. They need someone to listen, and they need to be humble and honest. And then they can move to higher ground. It's the dishonest person you can't do anything with, which is why you have the saved and the lost at the end of time. Marriages are the same way. If you're here as a single parent today, keep your courage. God's going to show you how to make the most of it, be strong and healthy, but you need the church family. But I'm asking you today, what is an automobile? No, what is a family? So let's make the journey and let's decide. When we come to looking at the evolution of the family, I came across this very interesting, uh, this very interesting graphic. I want you to look at that for a second. What's it say? Um, at the end of my sermon, I'm going to reference to a, an indices of belonging and an indices of rejection. I'm just going to tell you on the front side, um, kids are wanting mom and dad to make it work. And there's nothing more beautiful and nothing more powerful, Ellen White will write, than a loving and lovable and a well-structured and well-ordered family. And Jesus is the consummate family architect. That's part of what we're going to look at. But when you look at the indices of rejection and belonging that I'm going to reference to at the end of this sermon, you're going to see that only 46% of kids in America get to make it to age 17 with the two biological parents that brought them into the world staying together. That's not very high. 20 years ago, no, actually a little more than that, probably 50, 60, 70 years ago, it was about 20% higher. And simple things wonderfully work. So let's go ahead and dig in here a little bit. Hopefully you've had a chance to kind of look that graphic over and draw from it what you want to draw. Let's look at the dynamics of what is a family. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 2. And I want to look at verses 7 to 9. The family was not an accident. Next Sabbath, I'm going to be touching on what is a marriage. 
And we'll do a little bit of uh, examination of evolution and the concept of male and female. It's quite an uh, interesting uh, experience. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 and 9, we've come to the end of most of the creation. It says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. Also in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What I want you to see is that God was very intentional in his creation. And the family is not an accident, but a finely honed and carefully constructed social organization. The Bible says that all things hold together in Christ. I'd like for you to think about the family. Mom and dad are the nucleus, and the children are the protons and the electrons. And when they're all nice, tightly together, it's hard to break them apart. When they're working on the premises and the principles of the Scripture, they are exceptionally unified for the strength of society. And this morning, I want you to realize that when God formed man and woman and put them in the garden, he gave them everything they needed. It was his companionship, their companionship, and it was to be a blessing for all that would come under their care. So there was structure, there was provision. Now let's go over to Genesis 1 verse 26 and let's go to the next dynamic. It's God's intentionality that set up the family. Number two, uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, then God said, let us, capital us, make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Go down to chapter 2 again, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their host. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. And then over to verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. Now, both the family and the Sabbath are the quintessential social components of the creation. And when you look at the Ten Commandments, neither of them have a negative attached to their commandment. It's honor your father and mother, and it's remember the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made to be the consummate uh, companionship and togetherness day. So when you get done here today and you get to sit down at a lovely meal with your family, enjoy it. It's God's gift. He said, you don't have to go back out and sweat. You don't have to go out and shake and shiver in the cold. You don't have to go out and work in a way that uh, takes away from the pleasure of just being with the ones you love. And when God gave Adam to Eve and Eve to Adam, he was basically saying, the best thing I can give you is what we share as three co-eternal persons. We call that the Trinity. It's not a dirty word, by the way, and it is no accident that it's under attack at the end of the age because the unity of God is to be modeled in the home and in the church. And so when God looks over the earth and he says, let us make man in our image, what God is saying when he says it's not good for man to be alone is they should know the joy we know in this consummate oneness. And that's what God had in mind in families. Now, the devil wants to drive wedges between people so they can't know that joy. But I'm here to tell you, Solomon said, if you were to give all the wealth of your household for love, it would be utterly scorned. 
And when you're in a good marriage and you have a happy home, there's few things, there's nothing you'd trade it off on. And yet the devil comes along with his little subtle lies and suggests that maybe somebody else or maybe this degree or that financial accomplishment or business acquisition. But the second thing we know about the family and creation is that God created companionship as kind of the highest order of joy. Which is why as a church we need to focus on coming together. Because when people don't have a spouse or they don't have a family, they need to be a part of God's family in a way that pays dividends. The third thing I want us to see this morning is that there was education when it came to the family. Look at chapter 2 verse 16. God had the structure. He had the order. He planned on the companionship. And then God gave a few directions. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from the tree of the garden you may freely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will not eat. You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. When it comes to looking at order and authority, there are such constructs still operative in today. The order and authority for the family of, of Christians and for the blessing of all, should they receive it, is the Word of God. And the instruction that came down to you through your parents, many of whom never went to college, okay? I'm talking to a number of people whose parents worked with their hands. Praise the Lord. We need more and more of those types of people. We're getting to where there's not so many that uh, are using brain and brawn to achieve life's necessities for us, and it's creating problems. But authority in a home is a big deal. And while God didn't lay down a lot of rules, He did say, here's one. And so if you want to have a happy home, you're going to have to recognize that there is structure. It comes from God. You'll have to accept His authority. And there'll have to be a little education that goes on. Now, since sin has entered and there are so many pitfalls, the other 65 books of the Bible need to be looked at. And they need to be studied because they will give off all kinds of principles about how to be healthy and happy. But if you're not honest, if you're not willing to look honestly at your family system you came out of, they won't do you any good. And if you're in one of those downward spirals that Emerson Egerichs talks about in his book Love and Respect, you probably won't be able to hear. So it might be good if you're married or it might be good if you're a rebellion adolescence to just hit the pause button for a moment and say, God, do you have anything you want to say to me? Because I'm reacting to everything the closest people in my life say to me. But it's not the doctor's fault when he touches that pink raised piece of skin and you say, ouch, there's something wrong and the doctor didn't create the problem. He just pointed out that it exists. And if you refuse to acknowledge it exists, all 66 books of the Bible and the living Holy Spirit can be rejected and you won't have any benefit. The good news is God says He won't give you more to deal with than you can deal with. So let's just take the next step. But there does need to be education. And last week I held up the book Child Guidance. There's another one called Adventist Home. There's another one called Ministry of Healing. If you're not reading these books, you're missing out on the amazing principles that'll save you a $100 an hour therapist and a lot of frustration every day you wake up and look at the person you're supposed to be spending your life with with joy and instead it's all jilted. Education, structure, and authority. The Bible is the final word. Number four, there's accountability. There's a confrontation. We have an issue going on. And the issue relates, that should say chapter 3, verse 9. The issue relates to the disobedience to one of the few regulations in the garden. It says in chapter 3, verse 9, Then the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, Where are you? 
In other words, this companionship was an ongoing thing in the garden, and God's going to have an accountability. He's going to step in. He's not just going to look the other way and let things spin out of control. Praise the Lord. And for those of you that are heads of household, or for those of you that are a generation beyond that, you still have a leadership role in your family. And the older you get, the wiser you get. The more you learn from the things. The Bible says pick elders who've led their own households well. Well, you know, along the way, every elder's made a few mistakes and hasn't always led it quite as well as they should. But by the time they get to be an elder, they've learned from those things. And that's why the Bible puts together the generations. But when it comes down to accountability, a church or a family that will not hold itself accountable will be dysfunctional to a painful point. Let's go a little farther. There is an intervention. Chapter 3, verse 22. It says... The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove man out, pretty strong language. And at the east of the garden, he stationed the cherubim with the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, this is probably the least favorite part of any relationship. I can assure you as a pastor, it's the least favorite part for me. When a family is led by God and well led by its parents, and you get enough of those people together, you have something that's magnetic. Magnetic. It's fragrant. And I'm quite, I'm quite convinced that you could get by without a good preacher, but you can't get by without a good pastor, someone who understands family life law. Somebody could stand up here and preach the truth without being very interesting. But if they knew how to relate to the members of the church and put their feet on the path of life, you could still have a healthy, functioning church. Now, if we're going to have intervention and discipline, it means we're going to have to have a little bit of moral and relational nerve. And it means we're going to have to be wise rebukers and thoughtful and careful and dependent on God to know when and how to intervene. But if you get the idea that a family can work well without intervention and discipline, I don't know where you've uh, incubated, all right? The truth of the matter is we have a society right now in which there is nothing that's wrong. You can arrange a family any way you want. And we've come up with some very strange terms like when we start to look traditional Judaic Christian with a man and a woman, those are breeders. And you put two men together and you got one definition and two women together and you got another definition. I mean, we are so whacked out on what it means to be a family that we think we could drive the car with two, two wheels on one side. And it isn't going to work and it's not working. Um, I have in my hands here, uh, well, I've got three different things. I think I'm going to go with this one first. This is entitled The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce, a 25-year landmark study. Now, this is old. This was published in 2000. So it's a generational study. It's generational. It's in a generation old. And uh, the Adventist Church on its NAD or GC website has a wonderful summary of the book if you want to look at it. But I'm going to kind of go through it. Because when churches don't hold their members accountable, families have no safety net. When, when a man or a woman does something dumb, somebody in the church is supposed to get in their way and say, hey, you can't do that. You're going to cause lifelong suffering to your kids. You're going to cause tremendous pain to your, your wife or your husband. So let's just get a little summary since probably you don't have time to read the book. Let me just give you six summary findings of the book. 
It says for children, the impact of divorce is cumulative. So if you're thinking about divorce today, I'd like to caution you, step back. Look at yourself first. Don't bother looking at your spouse too terribly much for a few minutes. Just look at yourself and say, do I want to lay a lifelong impact on my kids? The first upheaval is felt when the divorce occurs, occurs, but the impact of the experience increases over time and rises to a crescendo in adulthood. Now, we're going to touch on that one more time in this little summary. But what I'm trying to tell you here today is this. You can't, you can't split the atom. You can't take the nucleus apart without some pretty damaging effects. Now, many of you listening to me have come out of divorced homes. There's great hope at the end of this. And there is a healer, Jesus Christ, who can allow you to build on a solid foundation for your own marriage. And if you've made that mistake, God is gracious. But I'm especially talking to those who are actively married right now for whom life is a little bit hard and they thought hitting the easy button might make life easier. It doesn't. Number two, from the disruption of their lives at the time of divorce, children draw the conclusion, sadly, that adult relationships are fragile and they can come apart suddenly without warning. And what does that do to the child? The child is left thinking that the relationship to the child could be broken at any time, leaving them abandoned and alone. I want these words to sink in deep, whether you're listening online or listening in this auditorium. You can't take the family apart. There's a reason in Malachi chapter 1, God says, I hate divorce. Number three, the immediate aftermath of the divorce does little to allay the fears. They are lonely. Nothing ensured that their changing needs and feelings would be considered. They feel insecure and alone. Number four, in adolescence, girls in divorced families were more likely to engage in sexual activity. And both boys and girls from divorced families and alcohol use drugs more frequently than adolescents from intact homes. Now imagine, if this was published in 2000, what's it like in 2023 when a lot of these drugs are legal in places? I want you to think about how to unravel your child's future. Number five, it's in adulthood that children of divorce suffer the most. I'm going to read that one more time. It's in adulthood that children of divorce suffer the most. They have no inner sense how a healthy marriage works and anxiety about relationships is at the bedrock of their personalities. Even those who eventually marry happily fear their happiness and even their marriage could, could evaporate at the first sign of conflict. Now, I want to tell you all, with Jesus in the family, you can have a very solid, happy home and things don't evaporate quickly because the Jesus that hung on the cross hangs on to you and me. The God that makes this thing redeemable is the God who was resurrected from the dead. And He can take our marriages and resurrect them from the dead. And He can give our homes a resurrection from the dead. But I want, I want you to hear 25-year longitudinal study considered the most seminal work on divorce of her generation. Number six, Many remained very angry with their parents for having been selfish and faithless. Many said, this is sad. Many said they have no intention of helping their parents in old age. God forbid you'd be a Christian and ever say that. You're not in Christ's will. It doesn't matter what mistakes you're made, your parents made. Jesus took this up. We talked about it last week. You can't say Corbin. You can't say, you're out of my life. I'm giving my wealth to the church. Jesus said, in vain do you worship me, substituting the commandments of men for my commandments. God's people take care of their elderly. Can you say amen? amen. And number seven, there are many survivors who despise the traumas of their childhood. 
Praise the Lord. They've built successful careers and meaningful relationships with family and friends. Their resilience is the mark of their courage and their hard efforts. It doesn't matter where you came from. Yes, you're going to bring some liabilities. Can you be honest about your family system? Can you be more than a victim? So you didn't have a dad. So you didn't have a mom. Maybe you didn't have either parent. The ravages of war created a whole generation of orphans. And strangely enough, many of those orphans, like um, was the name of the Wendy's founder, Dave, this man was an orphan, and they, what they found with so many of those orphans is they went on to become super achievers. Unfortunately, some of it may come out of the grave insecurity, the post-traumatic stress of being without a parent. Nonetheless, they went on to have good lives, and we can too. But there are to be interventions. I can tell you, I can't tell you how proud I was last night as I was visiting with one of my sons who uh, had had an interventionary discussion with a relative of his that needed two hours long. And it's, it's not easy for one generation that's young to stand up to the generation older than them. But this is what God asks of us. Otherwise, we'll be part participants, part and parcel. We'll be accessories to the crime when we sit by and we do nothing. God intervened. He said, look, there's a problem. You can't live here anymore. He took them outside the garden. And outside the garden, he made them place their hands on the head of the sheep. And he gave them the knife. And he said, you're going to have to do this. And as they cut the throat of the lambs, and they bled out and they bleeded out, God went through the pain of watching something die. God didn't kill those lambs. They did it. But he had to be right there to watch the innocent suffer in place of the guilty. The sixth thing you need to know is that in every family there's sacrifice and suffering which creates hope and security. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, talking about the snake and the woman. You shall he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Go down to verse 21. Verse 21 says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. What I want you to see is that Jesus, the consummate architect of happiness, is watching unhappiness uh, settle down on the first family, and is, he's grieved. And in the midst of that grief, he's the suffering one. And when he says there is a way out of this, but here's how it's going to be. Snakes don't have feet and arms. Snakes have bodies. They can wrap around you and they have fangs. They can sink into you. I'm going to step on the head, but in the process of wrestling with the snake, he's going to bite me. And when he pumps the poison into my body, I'm going to be the one that bridges the gap between the family in heaven and the family on earth. And, and eventually it's going to take my life, the neurotoxin that says God's gone away from me, the hematoxin that makes my heart feel like there's, there's no air for me to breathe. I'm suffering physically. I'm suffering emotionally. I'm suffering spiritually. I'm suffering mentally. It's Jesus' sacrifice and suffering that keeps hope in this family unit. And if you're a mom or a dad or a grandpa or a grandma, or maybe even a, an older child, there may be some suffering that you're going through. We're not getting out of this as a family unit without suffering with and for each other. And I want to tell you something. When you said for better or for worse, what you said is, I'm going to sacrifice and suffer to make this thing work. When I sit down with people and do premarital counseling, I ask them, what, make, what makes you think this marriage is going to work? Oh, we love each other. Well, I'm sure you do, but there's lots of people that thought they did. 
What's really going to make this thing work is that you make a promise and you're going to keep it. And in the strength of God, it's going to be that promise that's going to get you through those moments when you don't love each other and you don't like each other. And by the way, there's not a dollar you waste. Well, I mean, you could overdo it, but there's not a dollar wasted on investing in the original marriage. Get a babysitter for the kids. Go on a long weekend. Study how marriages get better. Study how to be a better parent. Read the books, Adventist Home and Child Guidance. Look at the Mind, Character, and Personality four-volume set. Do a little introspection and a little marital maintenance and look to the Lord for wisdom. Have that communion together in the Word. But I'm going to tell you, you don't get out of sacrifice and suffering. And it's that willingness to sacrifice and suffer that says to everybody, there's hope, there's hope, there's security. The last thing I want to talk about this morning is rejoicing in the Lord. Now, when we come to the end of the story in Genesis chapter 3, it's nothing but sadness for God. If you're in a hard spot in your marriage right now, be of good courage. God's gone through a divorce. Yes, He has. Spirit of prophecy, very clear. He's gone through marital unfaithfulness, and finally He goes through a divorce. And three and a half years after Jesus dies, the divorce doesn't happen at the cross. The divorce happens at the end of the 2300, well, at the end of the 490-day prophecy. God's trying to woo His people back. Instead, they kill Him. He still gives them three and a half years in the witness of His faithful church. But when they take the life of Stephen, the divorce papers are written and signed by God. And while Israel can be saved as individuals, the special covenant relationship is broken. And there is a new spiritual Israel that is now those that will be circumcised in heart, not in flesh. God's been through that pain. He's been rejected. The prodigal son and the older hard-hearted son, the, the parable of Luke 15, the father is God. And God has to listen to his older son basically say, I don't really like being with you and I resent you throwing a party for him. And God has to tell the younger son, you're going to have to leave because you don't respect my authority anymore. He says, I'll go and I don't plan to come back, so give me my inheritance. The son has to make it to the pig pen where the Bible says he comes to himself. Ellen White says his misery conquered his pride. Go ahead and pray it, friends. You got some kids out there that need to get to the pig pen? Pray the Lord will shorten the cycle and the misery of life will conquer their pride and they'll wake up and they say, I need to honor my father or my mother or whoever it was. Get out of God's way. Let him be the one that brings them to themselves. But I'm here to tell you there comes a moment of rejoicing it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. But, when, but it's before then, the, the first little bit of hope we seem to get is in Genesis 22 where Abraham's marching up Mount Moriah. Now Abraham's suffering as a dad, thinking to himself, how can I do this? I'm going to take the life of my son. And Abraham says, God himself will provide a sacrifice. We come down to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, and it says, basically, that God, for the joy that is set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And finally, we get to Revelation 19, 7 to 10. Let's look it up. Revelation 19, 7 to 10. And we get to that rejoicing moment. Why? Because the family's about to be brought back together. Revelation chapter 19, looking at verse 7 to 10. God is the ultimate, consummate father and mother to his people. And his heart has been heavy for so long. But as we get to the end of the story, here's the words. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. 
It was given to her to, be, to clothe herself in fine linen. That is the righteous lives that we live. Bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then, listen, this is precious. In my Bible, when I looked at this in preparation for this sermon, my heart was warmed. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. That's not God, that's the angel. And listen to what the angel says. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren. And in the margin of my Bible, I've written out to the side, we are a family who hold the testimony of Jesus and worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Hess said that we were related and I didn't stand up. Uh, I did when he pointed out my wife was standing up and, and that's not because I'm at all embarrassed of the connections I have to our new pastor doctor. But it's a little distant and I didn't know how close, you know, it was kind of a family moment. But when he looked right at me and said, your wife's standing up, it's like, oh, I better stand up then. <laughs> I'm going to explain to you how we're related. There's no nepotism here. As a matter of fact, a senior uh, pastor here, Pastor Bob Hess over here, can testify that when we were looking for our fourth pastor and his son was a candidate, I said, well, I'm going to make this hard. And uh, it actually troubled Pastor Bob why I said that. I explained it later on. I wanted to make sure we got God's man and that there was no... And uh, at that point in time, we were related. Now I want to explain to you how we're related, all right? That's Pastor Bob and I. He looks shorter than he is because he's standing on lower ground than me. But we were both officiating at a wedding. And this is how it works. My youngest son married his granddaughter. Let's just show you a picture of him. I look happy there. I am happy because this young lady comes from some good stock. And I happen to believe the boy does too. And uh, when it was all said and done, and they promised that they'd stay together for the rest of their life, and uh, I officiated over the promises and a couple hundred people watched, then we went to this. And I'm just so thankful for the people in my larger church family that make my life so beautiful. Friends, <laughs> my wife says to me, and when she met me, I was a butterfly in a chrysalis. I cannot tell you how much joy I find in my own home, in my own marriage. And, and you just need to know something so you, you at least know part of the, what I want to call it, the, um, the alternative motivations. Every mission trip Every evangelistic effort, every time that we have together to do something, I just love working with God's people to make them a healthier, happier family. And you are an extension of my family. And sometimes you might not like me because I've exported what I've learned in raising my own family. And some of the dysfunction I learned when I was young and the consequential lack of dysfunction that I refused to be a part of in my adult life. You could say in my professional life, but my calling's not a profession. I'm a shepherd. I'm a pastor. I'm pastoring with several other shepherds, this congregation. And we're trying to pastor on the premises of what will make you healthy and happy here and ready to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And sometimes it's a little hard, but I need you to know something, how much I love you 
and appreciate you and how much joy I have in being part of a family that's getting healthier and stronger, I believe, with most every passing day. I don't want to miss out. I got to thinking the other day, if we're all going to eat from one tree of life, it's going to have to be a pretty big tree. Because billions and billions of people, which I think there will be, are going to need to find their way under the branches. And the river that it grows over is going to have to be pretty big too because it's coming right out of the throne of God. But I'm here to tell you today, the world's got its version of family on display and it's bringing our society to the brink of implosion. And God has his family on display and the devil doesn't like it. So he wants to make sure you don't take time for your marriage and you don't understand the principles of healthy encouragement and love and nurture and accountability. He wants to make sure that in the church we let the proud and the rich and the well-educated who skipped over life's lessons get in important positions and twist the, the, the visage of the form of God. It can't happen. It does happen. This morning I want you to know something. Jesus... The consummate father and mother to all of his children said, John writing said, to those who believed on him, he gave him the power to become the sons and daughters of God. And Jesus said, unless you become as little children, you're not even going to see the kingdom. And if you want some good afternoon reading, go see what John the apostle writes because he uses that phrase little children over and over again. And you know what? There'd be nothing sweeter than to shed all the garbage of this life and sit at the feet of my heavenly Father and not have to worry and be able to be a little child. We got to work at it here. Life is heavy. Relationships are hard. I'm not going to take the time to go to the measure of the index of belonging and rejection, but I am going to tell you this. Nobody's ever loved you like God. So if things haven't turned out the way you thought they should in your family, don't give up. There's a fountain. And that fountain is flowing for you. And it's got the healing. The tree is made for the healing of the nations. That fountain is flowing to make us fruitful. I want my children to feel like olive shoots around my table. I want my wife to feel blessed. I've got to pay the price. The Bible says when I was a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I left childish things behind. I've got more to say, but I'm going to stop. I just want you to know this. If you want to lift up Jesus and be honest, you can drive that nice green Lamborghini. I'm driving one. And I'm not trading it in on anything else. So, may the fruits of the Spirit appear in our lives, give us the courage and the confidence to take the next step. May we be willing to know the richness of feasting at God's banquet table and His banner over us is what? Love. Friends, let's put the time, energy, and effort that our homes demand. Don't chase a career. Don't chase a college education. Don't chase a bigger promotion or a better job if it robs you of knowing what it means to have a happy, beautiful family. Put it all off. You know, I'm not too many weeks away from doing my own doctoral project. Signed up for it four times. And every time I came to the same conclusion, I've got too many other responsibilities, chief of which is my kids and my family. But I'm here to tell you what. I don't regret it. And when it's all said and done, I want to know there's one mistake I didn't make. 
I didn't fail to love them the best way I could, whether they liked me or didn't. And the end, point them to Jesus who wanted to give them back what the devil robbed them of, which is a room in his house in the best family there's ever been sitting on his throne, serving in his cosmic government for the safety, well-being, and joy of the entire universe and its family. Nothing's better than belonging. Nothing's better than the strength of commitment. Nothing's better than drinking from the fountain of affection that flows from the heart of God. And this morning, I hope that we'll be humble and honest, that we'll make a decided effort to study, look, and live, and that we'll lift up Jesus and find the joy that only He can bring. May God bless us as we make this journey. Let's stand together for our closing hymn.